you know, what Cambodia did in the past years is, is truly remarkable, you know, in terms of uh, leapfrogging and going towards Industry 4.0 and, and really rising up the ranks very quickly in terms of how we went from the very basics of production towards, you know, the garment sector and now more into the manufacturing sector. We've really seen a lot of growth. Welcome to Between the Binary, a limited series podcast highlighting the priorities, prospects, and challenges of technology in the Global South through the voices of experts in and from the Global South. This podcast is curated for the John H. MacArthur Research Fellowship Program in cooperation with the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. I'm Elena Noor, one of the two inaugural MacArthur Fellows and your host for this series. I'm joined by Siriwat Chem, who is director of the Center for Inclusive Digital Economy at the Asia Vision Institute in Cambodia. Siriwat is also a digital business consultant at Phnom Penh Commercial Bank and Jobify. He's also a visiting professor at Kiriram Institute of Technology, as well as a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers Community, Phnom Penh Hub. So Cambodia, with a population of about 17 million, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Siriwat, is one of the smaller countries in Southeast Asia. But it's a country steeped in rich civilizational history, famous for beautifully intricate temples like Angkor Wat and Bayon, but also perhaps infamous for a tragic past of not so long ago. These days, the geopolitical headlines on Cambodia are mainly about Phnom Penh's relations with China on the one hand, and with the United States and its partners and allies on the other. This year, Cambodia holds the rotating chair of ASEAN, and so there'll be greater spotlight on your country, Sirawat. There's very little that's reported about Cambodia's drive for digitalization in the international media. And yet there are really interesting below-the-radar developments about Cambodia adopting big data and AI, for example, for agricultural innovation, financial inclusion, even for historical education, such as the virtual Angkor project, which recreates and reconstructs the ancient city of Angkor at the height of the Khmer Empire in the 14th century. Siri, what your educational background and current professional roles embody the promise and vibrancy of Southeast Asia's digital future. And yet we both know that there are many challenges related to technological access, capacity and development in Cambodia and in Southeast Asia writ large, both within the 10 ASEAN member states as well as among them. So tell us, what are Cambodia's most pressing technology priorities beyond these stories that we read about and hear about in the news? Yes, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a great uh, honor and pleasure. I'd just like to share some of my uh, personal perspectives today based on my research, based on my uh, studies in international relations and digital technology management. Um, I think regarding the case of Cambodia, in in the context of today's day and age, where we see rapid digitalization, especially over the past two years, which has been accelerated by the situation of the pandemic, there are certain, uh, let's say, sectors or components of the Cambodian economy and society which have been focusing uh, in terms of technology. If we look at the newly established Ministry of Industry, Science, Technology and Innovation in Cambodia, Recently, you could say uh, rebranded and refocusing on STI, Science, Technology, Innovation. Um, they laid out their national STI policy framework and roadmap for the next few years to be focusing on three main technology priorities. 
so those three priorities consist of health technology, health tech, agriculture technology, agri-tech, and finally, education technology, edutech. So we could say that those three of the edutech, health tech, and agri-tech uh, are some of the technology priorities for Cambodia for the next few years. Another important factor or note to keep is that in terms of economic sectors in Cambodia, before the COVID-19 era, we could say that the garment industry, uh, along with tourism, agriculture, and construction, consists and make up of uh, the four, we could say, driving sectors of the Cambodian economy over the last one or two decades, uh, where in the last 20 years, Cambodia has experienced above 7% GDP growth annually. Uh, so in terms of economic growth and development, this is quite remarkable, not just uh, in the case of uh, Cambodia or ASEAN, but really uh, around the world. So uh, as you correctly mentioned before, the population of Cambodia is around 16, 17 million in terms of population and size, perhaps one of the smaller countries in the uh, ASEAN region. But based on the uh, past data and evidence, uh, we can see that Cambodia is indeed quite a rapidly developing country for many factors, some of which may be, first of all, the very young population. I believe the median age in Cambodia is around 26 years old, with more than two-thirds of the population, or around 70%, under the age of 30. So having a young population compared to the rest of the ASEAN nations or around the world puts it at quite a competitive edge in terms of contributing towards a bright future. Uh, another important factor in terms of uh, technology priorities and overall digital adoption and tech savviness in the, in the nation has been quite affordable mobile data. So we see that through the local telecom sectors providing quite, let's say, uh, affordable and accessible mobile data uh, in addition to uh, internet service, we pay around, let's say, 8 USD per month, which essentially leads us to have unlimited uh, mobile data or anything upwards from 20 gigabytes. So uh, these are just small factors which do, in the long run, accumulate towards access to the internet, our ability to uh, utilize and navigate digital platforms and applications, and all of this in the context of the digital era. So uh, I think for now, I'll just keep my answer to that. But those are the three main uh, technology priorities, which are health tech, agri-tech, and education tech. And we can, uh, once again, put that in the context that uh, the four main economic sectors driving the nation are uh, related to uh, the garment industry, agriculture, tourism, and construction. Great, thanks. And I wonder if you could unpack some of the approaches or policies that are being laid out to meet these priorities that you outlined. I also would like to get your thoughts on what makes for an inclusive digital economy for Cambodia's younger generation, given that you are from the Center for Inclusive Digital Economy after all. Yeah, thank you for your question. So um, in terms of unpacking or maybe diving a little bit deeper into the respective policies and frameworks that will drive those three, let's say, technology priorities or reaching those goals and, and, and accomplishments, I would say that it's definitely a collective effort, uh, inter-ministerial, meaning that uh, not only this specific ministry that I mentioned, but others as well, uh, whether it be from post and telecommunications aspect or from um, the economy and finance or any other, let's say, ministry or institution with some sort of technical capability or support are all starting to come into play. So we can see that uh, regionally, let's say in terms of cybersecurity, 
Uh, we see that most ASEAN countries over the last few years or decades have adopted their respective cybersecurity slash cybercrime laws. Certain countries put them separately, certain countries have them all in one. And we see that now Cambodia is also catching up to that now with uh, in the formulation of their own, um, let's say the whole legislation process for cybersecurity law. That's one very important aspect. I think uh, all around the world, regardless of uh, where you are and, and what kind of technology priorities or sectors that uh, you're trying to, let's say, accomplish, having a very robust uh, policy framework for cybersecurity will indeed protect citizens, but also organizations. And of course, the critical information infrastructure, uh, which is essential to all operation, effective operation of nations, you know, whether it be from the banking sector, from you know, water supply, electricity, and so on. Uh, so all of these are very interlinked. There are many policy frameworks and, and, and legislations that are in process. But we could say that another key component or important policy framework that is in play is from uh, the Ministry of Economy and Finance, where they laid out their digital economy and society policy framework. It's quite extensive, but again, this shows the collective effort from the different ministries in Cambodia. So the first being the uh, national STI roadmap from the Ministry of Industry, Science, Technology, Innovation. Another one would be this particular uh, digital economy and society policy framework for the Ministry of Economy and Finance, uh, and so on. The list goes on. So uh, we do see these, let's say, big picture policy frameworks being taken uh, very seriously and into consideration from uh, all sectors across Cambodia. And then we do see, let's say, more technically capable ministries who are, who are providing very important and, and effective uh, let's say, laws such as uh, cybersecurity and so on from these efforts. So all of this together, uh, I believe that in terms of, let's say, moving towards an inclusive digital economy, it is quite a goal to reach. But really to be inclusive just implies that, of course, becoming or digital, uh, a digital economy or transforming into one, it implies uh, increased connectivity between people, between businesses, organizations, looking at the demand and supply side, using you know, third-party applications or platforms that are uh, either centralized or not that brings together really all of our daily needs, operations, whether it be in our personal lives or in professional. And so all of this is really taking into account, you know, how rapidly are we moving forward in terms of uh, development through uh, digitalization. We see it every day here in Cambodia to give you very on-the-ground uh, evidence, which is less abstract. Uh, in the last two years, We've seen a huge increase in uh, in e-commerce, in food delivery, you know, financial payments through mobile applications. Uh, not that these didn't already exist before, but it really came out of the necessity during the context where you know working from home and lockdowns were uh, quite apparent throughout the, the past year. That there's really been an emergence and really a recognition of these applications and platforms to help. Uh, the economy helped the society. So I think my final point would just be that uh, in order to keep in mind inclusiveness, it's definitely a challenging task simply because development is not always uh, equal or grows at uh, equal rates or speeds, but it really is starting off at the center of the development or the innovation and then has to gradually spread uh, outwards or, or beyond, let's say from uh, urban to rural. This is quite natural in terms of development uh, and even more so when it comes to technology and to 
uh, anything that is related to uh, the digital economy, because at the end of the day, it does rely on very key pillars of infrastructure, uh, which are traditional. You know, you have your uh, your roads, you have your electricity poles, and then therefore that ex uh, extends into access to internet. So all of these components really play uh, a very important role and are all interlinked. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned context um, because I wanted to bring up this issue of language. And one of the things I've heard coming from countries that um, don't have English as their first language have very different scripts to the uh, Romanized alphabets. I've heard that sometimes this is a problem, particularly in rural areas. And this goes to the point about inclusion. Is this something that's a challenge in Cambodia as well? Uh, definitely inclusion uh, is a challenge, uh, just like around the world. But you could say in the context of Cambodia, naturally, because Cambodia, let's say, had a, a bit of a late start, you know, given it's a historical context. You know, what Cambodia did in the past years is, is, is truly remarkable, you know, in terms of uh, leapfrogging and going towards uh, Industry 4.0 and, and really, um, let's say, rising up the ranks very quickly in terms of uh, how we went from, you know, the very basics of production towards, you know, the garment sector and now more into the manufacturing sector. We've really seen a lot of growth. And does it have some implications on inclusive? Definitely, you know, the disparity between urban and rural areas, you know, there's a very common, uh, let's say, concept, you know, according to a digital divide, how that if surely we apply digital applications and, and platforms in our everyday use and throughout society, it will create some sort of gap or digital divide where those in the urban area will benefit with full access to the internet and, and reliable infrastructure that will continue to grow and move forward and advance uh, technologically. But then those in the rural areas either have limited or no access to the internet or, or smartphones and mobile devices. But to be completely honest, you know, these are the kind of hiccups or let's say obstacles that sometimes have to be uh, dealt with from different approaches because there is not one solution that can, you know, fix all of these things at the same time. Uh, and it would be too ideal to think that development could be, uh, let's say, laid out in, in a certain time frame without some sort of uh, implication on uh, the divide or gap. But on a more positive note, we do see that in Cambodia, despite the very rapid growth and despite the fast growing technological infrastructure, you know, uh, moving out throughout the country and from urban to rural, uh, there are many initiatives as well, as well that do take into account this digital divide and trying to raise awareness on digital literacy uh, and so on. So it, it's quite an interesting topic to discuss. Um, but we can go, yeah, more more into that into into the next few questions. Yeah, no, that's great. And and as you pointed out, this is this issue of a digital divide is true across the region. It's true in developed economies, um, and it's not a one-off thing. But there's a lot of capacity building that is trying to be initiated um, in our region in Southeast Asia, and. Very often we turn to the more developed economies of the global north with their technological advancement and, and uh, mature infrastructures to help us out. I wonder though, what you think of more intra-regional cooperation, more inter-regional cooperation amongst countries in the global south that face a number of common challenges, um, such as the ones that we've talked about already. 
Do you think there are more prospects that need to be explored um, in South-South cooperation, for example, or is that something that's just passé? Yeah, it's a great question. But I think uh, before answering, I just want to clarify so uh, we can be on the same page. Uh, I mean, what exactly do you imply by, let's say, Global South, or you know, which nations does that consist of a region and, and the same for uh, Global North? So this podcast takes a very broad uh, interpretation of Global South. We're talking about countries that are below the equatorial line. Geographically, that's the Global South. But we're also considering communities in the Global South context, meaning marginalized or underrepresented communities and even developed economies in the Global North. So it's more of a, an abstract concept, but it's also one that's rooted in geography. Um, so hopefully that helps somewhat. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your explanation. Uh, it's good just to be on the same page before I start answering. So I, I think if your question is related to um, really, you know, how does regional cooperation and collaboration, let's say, uh, affect this technology advancement moving forward? Most definitely. I mean, it, it can happen in many ways. The first of which is, you know, certain countries that are, let's say, wanting to adopt new uh, legislations or, or policy frameworks and so on can definitely learn from uh, more advanced and established nations from around the world in a global perspective. They don't always work because uh, we all understand that different nations, different regions have different contexts in terms of culture. Uh, and because of that, you know, it's sometimes quite beneficial to look at regional partners. Uh, why we look at partners? Because they have, uh, we could say, at least slightly more similar characteristics to the nation uh, uh, of interest. And uh, we do see some certain similarities sometimes in, in that context. So I think it does help to understand the, both the similarities and differences uh, of the nations that uh, we are comparing if we take more concrete examples. Right. I mean, Singapore is a, is a very technologically advanced country at a very early start. I studied 10 years in Singapore, so I really lived through, uh, you know, what was going on during the time and the evolution. And then to see, you know, my home country in Cambodia, I wouldn't say it's following the same path or a similar path, but it's just two parallel paths that each nation has to go through. So every story uh, is really different. But in terms of what we can learn, it can go really many ways and sometimes in both directions. If we look at Singapore in terms of their uh, robustness and, and really what they have been able to do with technology, given their you know, smaller population and smaller country size, is, is truly uh, internationally recognized. You know, this is why it's become one of the, let's say, global technology and financial hubs in the world, very uh, well-known and respected. But at the same time, you know, it has uh, pros and cons. If you go attend any international uh, cybersecurity conference or you do some reading in field of cybersecurity, they often bring up Singapore as uh, a prime example of being one of the most technology advanced countries in the world, which is uh, truly amazing. But at the same time, even though they're ranked, let's say, number one in uh, cybersecurity uh, index or preparedness, uh, they still are being attacked the most or experiencing the most cyber attacks, you know, so all of these indices and, and, and these matrices who, which are formed to kind of act as a criteria to see who's more advanced or who is more established, it, it really is quite a gray area sometimes. Uh, but regardless, as I mentioned before, I think that each nation follows uh, their own path. And for Cambodia, you know, there's much to be learned from our regional partners and friends from around the world. And I think that the best approach would really just to be to 
uh, explore what the different nations are doing, and at the same time, contextualize that for, uh, you know, our very own case or situation. Yeah, I mean, personally, I think there's a lot for, there's a lot of opportunity for exchanges between Southeast Asia and the African continent, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's such a dynamic part of the world. And if you consider how most of the world's population lives outside the US, lives outside Europe, there's certainly a lot of these types of exchanges that need to be taking place given uh, where we're at socioeconomically. Most of us are on par or thereabouts. And so I think there are lessons to be learned even outside the ASEAN region. But um, we've also often heard within Southeast Asia that the region doesn't want to be squeezed in this technological rivalry between the US and China. Where does Cambodia stand on this? Does it take a similar position? And how does the technological fissures that are being entrenched now bear upon Cambodia's priorities and technological prospects in the next few, say, 10, 20 years? Yes. So uh, the question you asked is uh, definitely a very hot one, a very hot topic. Um, I'd like to answer this more from a scholarly perspective, simply because my uh, master's degree in international relations, I did focus a lot on sovereignty and diplomacy in cyberspace, looking into technology rivalry that's happening around the world. It's definitely an interesting topic. So I would say that um, if ASEAN does not want to be squeezed within a rivalry or, uh, of some sort, or at least that's what the narrative is, sometimes that's inevitable. It can't really be avoided simply because uh, if we look at this from a more uh, technical perspective and less political, well, okay, one example, one key component or uh, aspect would be, for example, rare earth, rare earth elements, right? Rare earth elements are extremely key materials, uh, you know, essential for creating semiconductors. And we know that semiconductors are used in all of our uh, essential, let's say, mobile devices or uh, electronic appliances, especially with the emergence of smart technology. Uh, so you could say that uh, this is really the building block of almost everything that we use today in our digital era, right? Because everything is done online, everything is done electronically, digitally, through our smartphones, through our laptops, which have really become an extension of the human body. Because uh, although they do remain separately as of now, physically, I think it's very difficult for anyone to let go of their phone or their laptop at any certain point. So we see that it's become so deeply ingrained into our bodies, not just, as I mentioned, not yet physically, but mentally, psychologically, all of that is happening. Uh, and so going back to rare earth elements, which is just one very key uh, aspect. We see that uh, whichever nation, uh, not to name any, but whichever nation has, let's say a monopoly on the uh, rare earth elements market, whichever countries are related to them in terms of uh, international trade and the global supply chain for you know, manufacturing and developing these smart devices or electronic goods and, and, and the services that are related to them. Uh, this really does create some tension in the arena of international uh, relations, whether or not you want to be stuck in some sort of uh, rivalry. So I think just to put all of that in the big picture, it's very interesting to see how the world is increasingly becoming globalized, uh, not just through diplomacy or travel and, and trade, but really uh, key components that build up everything around us. And this new uh, infrastructure that is in place 
is not only tools or, you know, if we think about it in a very traditional manner, you know, every country has their own, uh, let's say, raw materials to build a house, you know, to build roads and so on. But now that we become much more technical in, in the cyberspace, all of these infrastructure, a lot of these components come from around the world that are moving around uh, and they make up what is cyberspace, which is truly, you could say, an additional layer of existence on top of where we already live, which is in, in, in reality. So I think all of these components between uh, the physical and the cyber and how it's affected to our individual behavior as humans, uh, as organizations, as nations, all of this creates a, a natural tension, you know, through uh, a very dynamic nature of, of how things are, are, are interlinked, how things are interacting between human and machine. So I think it, it's very hard to avoid any stimulated change. That's just uh, the natural path that it would follow. Yeah, you brought up uh, rare earths, which is, of course, a controversial topic right now. And as you pointed out, it's one of the foundational elements of uh, the devices that we have today. But there's also a lot of talk about things like algorithms and the logic layers of technology that maybe countries in Southeast Asia and other parts of the developing world need to be more a part of. Can you talk a little bit about where you see Cambodia's future in this? Should we rethink how technology is designed, is constructed, even deployed? Because for the most part, we in Southeast Asia are consumers and users of technology. Sure, we have unicorns, we have Grab, we have uh, Gojek, Tokopedia, and all that. But at its widest scale, we're not producers, we're not innovators of technology right, at scale. Is this something that should change given the demographics of the world, given what the region can bring, you know, given Cambodia's young generation? Um, should this change? Thank you for your question. Uh, it's, it really uh, sparked my interest. And, and now I remember, finally, uh, the point that I forgot before. Uh, so I'll quickly move on to that. Uh, but it is related. So you did mention that Cambodia and ASEAN, we are not yet producers of these technologies in the field of data and algorithm and so on. All of this is key uh, in the field of AI ethics, right? We talk about ethics because although you know, we can simply put this into man and machine, you know, there's always a man behind the machine. And if all algorithms and programs, applications and platforms are being produced from a certain part of the world, uh, they will naturally, you know, result in something that's called algorithm bias, right? Because the data that is being fed to it, the people who are collecting the data, the people who are uh, really, you know, structuring the program and the code all creates a bias. Uh, so just in parallel, uh, the point that I wanted to mention before, Cambodia and, and ASEAN countries, yes, we are huge consumers of these technology uh, applications, not just in terms of the population, but even per capita. I mean, I would say that based on recent uh, data and statistics, we see that ASEAN is most definitely one of the, uh, the dynamic economic regions in the world, and for many good reasons. Firstly, you know, as I mentioned, which is, is similar to Cambodia as in the whole region, is the young population. Overall, they're very tech savvy. Uh, I recently read an article that really caught me by surprise because when you live in a certain country or a certain context, you don't realize what is normal and not normal. But basically, this article said that, I don't remember the statistic exactly, but I remember that Facebook. So using Facebook 
voice function or the, the voice recording function, in the entire world, Cambodia takes up more than 50% of that voice recording function on Facebook. So when you think about it, it's very, very strange. It's very specific. And for Cambodia to have over 50% or a very large majority of the entire world's you know, market or not market, but the, the usage of this voice function is quite remarkable. So, so I looked more into this article and did more research and I realized that uh, it's to the point that you mentioned before, the Khmer language is very complicated. Therefore, we can't use it in Google Translate. Uh, it's very difficult to type, even for a native speaker, a native Cambodian person, it's very difficult to type because of the structure of uh, the alphabet and, and the grammar and the formulation of sentences. So uh, Cambodia does what most countries do, um, just like in Chinese, you have your opinion. And then just like in other foreign languages, we apply the, uh, the Roman alphabet to it. Uh, that's what we do in Khmer language as well for typing. And because that's been so complicated, uh, Cambodians have sort of gone through their own paradigm shift where they, uh, where they use voice recording for everything. Uh, we use it on WhatsApp, on Telegram, on Facebook. Uh, it's just become the new way of operation, you know, whether it's for work, for e-commerce, delivery services, it's really taken on an unexpected role that has had such a huge impact on people's lives in Cambodia, the economy, the society. And uh, as I mentioned before, you know, for me, having lived here for the past few years, I didn't even notice to what extent until you know, an outside perspective was given on this. You know, for me, I, I like to stay uh, as scientific and evidence-based as possible. But when you see an article like this, it really hits the point home that Cambodia really has this sort of different mindset and impact. So it's not to say whether uh, one certain nation is, you know, more technology advanced, but just that every nation has their different context. We use technology in different ways. And sometimes these functions uh, are unintended, but in the long run, they do contribute and put that in, in the right direction. And so just to finally answer that uh, last point, you know, should we redesign, you know, technology and how its applications and platforms are being consumed or being supplied to citizens and organizations and nations, definitely there should be more consideration uh, in terms of the design. Uh, we do have to take into account ethics. The more rapidly you know, uh, growing the technolo technology world and field becomes, uh, the more we have to rely on you know, the humanities and ethics and, and the philosophy behind it to uh, really keep us grounded. Because if we go too far into this advancement, uh, it can really take away from what we as humans should be doing, the right thing, the good thing, uh, the ethical thing. You know, the, all of these are very general, but uh, in technology, it really does extend and, and you could say amplify. You know, whatever we put in, will amplify it, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And finally, in terms of the actual redesigning of, of, of how we see technology applications and platforms, it's extremely hard to say, uh, you know, if we could create an ideal or perfect product or service, uh, just like in the video game, putting everything to, let's say, uh, 100, like in terms of efficiency, speed, use case, you know, for it to be uh, ethical and non-harmful or lethal or be able to affect bias and, and political uh, attention, all these things, that would be great. But of course, that's not possible. And uh, as we mentioned before, uh, sometimes, even if we redes redesign our technology in a certain way, there will always be another way that was unintended for it to be useful. And the same could be that there is always going to be another way that somebody with, let's say, malicious intent or bad you know, intentions overall to 
misuse it and abuse it in a way that uh, would not be beneficial, but rather it would be harmful. So uh, with all of this, uh, you know, in, in mind, I think it's quite difficult to have everything ideal, you know, whether it's development to be growing at the, at the right time, uh, equally among the urban and rural, especially with technology. Uh, and the same goes with in terms of redesigning for its purpose and for functionality. But it is important to keep in mind all these factors. And I think moving on into the future, uh, Cambodia, ASEAN, Asian countries, and so on, will uh, continue to develop very rapidly and contribute uh, towards, let's say, the more global digital economy, where we will start to produce our own applications and platforms, which has already been seen. But hopefully they will, um, let's say, add to the diversity in the market. And overall, this will create some sort of uh, digital equality among, uh, among the world. And, and, and hopefully that might ease some tensions and understanding between, uh, between nations. Thank you. I'm so glad you brought up that point about the Khmer language because I was trying to get at that, but I clearly couldn't articulate it eloquently. And so that was the exact anecdote that I heard about the Khmer language. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Sirwat, I started off uh, in my introduction of you by saying that your experience, your educational background embody the uh, promise and vibrancy of Cambodia in particular, but also uh, Southeast Asia in general. And I think the insights that you've shared have only emphasized and highlighted that. So it's been such a pleasure speaking to you and listening to your perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, a great honor, and uh, I wish you all the best. so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and found the conversation useful. This podcast series is made possible by the John H. MacArthur Research Fellowship in cooperation with the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada, Canada's leading think tank on Canada-Asia relations. To learn more about the fellowship or the foundation, be sure to visit asiapacific.ca.